0: Welcome to the History of the Bible. Here we will look to the Bible and explore the history of God's story. From the perspective that the Bible is absolute truth with events that actually happen with people that actually live. Never measuring what the Bible says and comparing it to man's theories, but always putting the theories under what the Bible says as truth. Come, join us in the History of the Bible podcast. Episode eleven the start of two nations. In this episode, we'll be covering chapters 35-38 through of Genesis. After Jacob's sons completely destroyed the whole city, taking the little ones and the women as slaves, Jacob fears that the surrounding tribes will come together against him and destroy him and his family. Therefore, God called Jacob to go back to Bethel, were all those years ago when Jacob was fleeing from Esau and fell asleep on a rock and dreamt about the ladder or stairway that went up to heaven. So here is where God is calling him back to. When Jacob first came through Bethel on his way to his uncle's place in Mesopotamia, he had made a vow with God that if he was brought safely back to his father's house, then the God of his father and his grandfather would be his God. Therefore, before going back to the place of Bethel, the house of God, Jacob calls all those in his company to get rid of all the fake and foreign gods. Some say that this is where Jacob finally learned that his wife Rachel stole her father's household gods. Also, it could have been that Jacob was cleaning out all the foreign gods that were brought into the camp by the women that were captured by the plundering of Shechem. They also gave Jacob their earrings. The reason that Jacob took their earrings is because that it was thought that earrings were not just ornaments or a fashion statement but they actually could have bore pictures or shapes that could have been used for objects of worship. Another thought is that the earrings were pagan amulets used to fight off evil. So he took all the gods and earrings and buried them under a terebinth tree, a tree that is native to the Mediterranean region, just outside the city of Shechem. Once they left Shechem, heading for Bethel about 20 mile journey, the fear of God fell on the surrounding cities. Therefore, the fear that Jacob had about being pursued and killed never came true because God was watching over him and his company. While in Bethel, it says that Rebekah's nurse died while in Jacob's company. If this is the same nurse that was sent with Rebekah to marry Isaac in Genesis 24 verse 59, she would be over 150 years old. In those days, a nurse was someone that breastfed a baby. So if the family was able to have servants or slaves the wife would have a child and give them to a nurse that would breastfeed the child. Sometimes this type of nurse would be called a wet nurse. But how did she get into Jacob's company? There's a couple thoughts of how she ended up with Jacob. The first thought was that Rebekah was fulfilling her promise when she told Jacob that she would send word to him when it would be safe to travel back to his father's house in Genesis 27 verse 45. Rebekah could have sent her nurse to tell Jacob that it was safe to come home. Another thought is that Jacob must have already visited his father's household after leaving Lebanon and Haran and found out that his mother had already died. So he must have asked Deborah to join him after Rebekah's death. And there are some that say that it wasn't even Deborah that died at all, rather that it was actually Rebekah that had died. The reason that this is thought to be is because of the name that was given to the place that she was buried was called Alambakuth, which means Oak of Weeping. However, the Bible does say that it was Deborah that died, not Rebecca. And although no one is really sure how or why Deborah was with Jacob and his company, she did end up dying while in the midst and was buried in a valley below Bethel underneath an oak tree. While Jacob was staying in Bethel, God came down to Jacob and spoke to him. The promise that was given to Abraham and Isaac, God was now passing it on to Jacob. And for a second time Jacob's name is changed again from Jacob to Israel. Therefore God tells him to be fruitful and multiply and that from him kings will be in his line of descendants. After going to Bethel, Jacob then decided to head south towards Bethlehem. But on the way Rachel goes into labor with her second child. However, while giving birth it would not go well. Rachel ended up dying giving birth to Jacob's last son, which she named ben which means son of my suffering. However, Jacob would change the name of his son from ben to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Rachel would be buried along the way from Bethel to Bethlehem, on which Jacob would place a pillar on top of her grave. This pillar would be seen later on when the Israelites would come into the land hundreds of years later. Today a white domed building is marking the site of where she is buried on the northern side of Bethlehem, closer to Jerusalem. Jacob would continue moving and set up his tent near the Tower of Edder. This tower was thought to be between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. It is also thought to be translated as Megul Eder, which means Tower of Flock. This tower is used to watch over the flocks that were pasteurizing in the fields nearby. This tower would be a two-story building the top part being where a shepherd could look out into the field and keep an eye on the flocks. The bottom part was a room in which the shepherds would bring in an ewe into which they could have their young in a clean area. Once the young was born, it would be swaddled up and placed inside the manger until it calmed down so that the young lamb would not harm itself. Later on in time, these flocks just outside of Jerusalem and Bethlehem were for the temple sacrifices. That is why the lambs were needed to be born into a clean area and have no blemish or defect. The only other mention of this type of tower is in Micah 4 verse 8 where it mentions the tower of the flock. This passage is thought to refer to two different things, either when Jerusalem was to be returned to its former glory or the coming of the Messiah. But the return of glory happens when Jesus reigns over Israel. If it's in connection to the Messiah coming, then it is saying from the tower of flocks that Jesus would come from. Rather than it being a stable which Jesus was born in, it was the tower of Edder, which he would be swaddled up and then placed into a manger, which the shepherds came to worship him would have recognized as him being prepared to be the sacrificial lamb. This is a sign that the angels told the shepherds in Luke 2 verse 12 that the baby would be swaddled up and placed in a manger, just like a perfect lamb that was to be used for sacrifice. However, this baby would be the ultimate sacrifice. In this land is where Jacob would stay for a little bit, just north of Bethlehem. However, while in this land, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, sleeps with his father's concubine, Billa. Now, there are two thoughts as why Reuben did this. The first thought is that Reuben slept with Billa because she was the maidservant of Rachel, fearing that Billah may take the place of Reuben's mother, Leah, as the main wife. Therefore, when he defiled Billa, that removed her from the picture as becoming the chief wife in place of Leah. Another thought of why Reuben slept with her was because in pre-Islamic Arab custom, which could have existed within the Canaanite society, the firstborn son would inherit all of his father's wives and concubines. Therefore, when Reuben did this, he was laying claim to what would be his just a little premature, seeing that his father wasn't dead yet. This could have been seen as Reuben challenging his father's authority and trying to grasp power within the family tribes. Jacob would finally make it back to his father Isaac in the land of Hebron, which is where Abraham and Sarah were buried in the cave of Machpelah, just 18 miles south of Jerusalem. Isaac would then die in Hebron at the age of 180 years old. At this time, Jacob and Esau would be 120, because they were both born when Isaac was 60 years old. Both Jacob and Esau were there to bury their father in the cave of Machpelah. At some point in time, Esau and Jacob came together and lived in the land of Hebron after the death of their father. However, they both had so many possessions that in Genesis 36 verse 7, it says that Esau moved away from his brother Jacob because the land could not support both of them. So Esau took his family and goods and moved, and permanently settled in the hill country of Seir. Again, this is just east of Arabah, which could also be east of the Jordan Valley. This country in which Esau would settle is in the mountainous region, with mountains that are 5,900 feet in height, but they usually are around only 1,500 to 2,000 feet in height. Most of the land is rough and rocky heights with peaks that were inaccessible. However, between the peaks would be extremely fertile valleys that would be used for farming and livestock. The descendants of Esau would be called the Edomites, which comes from the word Edom. The word Edom means red, which could be the description of the red sandstones that were found in the rocky terrain of the land of Seir. It also had to do with the name that Esau was given after his birthright was traded for a bowl of red soup. Therefore after that moment he was known as both Esau and Edom. Esau had multiple wives, and with them he had five sons. Although it does say that he had daughters as well, but how many is not known. Of those five sons, only two would have grandsons, and from those two grandsons, they would have ten children. Of these five sons, one of them is named Iliphiz. Now it has been thought by some that Iliphiz was the same Iliphiz the Timonite in the book of Job 2, verse 11. Esau's son Iliphiz had a son named Timon. If that is the case then the book of Job would be placed around this time period when Jacob and Esau were still alive. However, more will be on that when we dive into the book of Job. Another one of the ten great grandchildren of Esau would be Amalek who was born of a concubine and from him the Amalekites would descend. This tribe of people would be one of the first people to attack the Israelites when they were exiting Egypt. The grandsons of Esau would split up into different tribes just like Ishmael's sons and the tribes of Jacob. They would spread out across the land of Sierra. However, when Esau first got to the land of Seir, there were other people already living there, Seir the Horite and his descendants. The Bible says that Sierra was a Horite living in the land of Seir. Although not much is known about the Horites, it is known that they were attacked by the four king alliance that came from Mesopotamia and took Lot captive. However, not much else is known about them. They could be a branch off the descendants of the Hivites. The word Horite means cave dweller, so it could be simply referring to the tribes that lived in the hill country east of the Jordan Valley. They wouldn't last long as a tribe because Esau and his descendants would conquer the Horites. In Deuteronomy 2 verse 12 and 22, it says that Esau overthrew them and most likely integrated the conquered people into the descendants of Esau. This can be seen in that the daughter of Seir was a concubine of Esau's son Eliphaz. The daughter of a chieftain was not usually a concubine unless her people were conquered. After conquering the tribes that lived in the hill country, the descendants of Esau would become known as the Edomites and then later be called the Edomines by the Greeks. In Genesis 36 verse 31 it says that there were kings that reigned in Edom before there were any kings that reigned in Israel. These kings didn't reign like most kingdoms, in the sense that the throne was passed on from father to son. Their political system was a little bit different. Not only was the throne given to someone else of a different family, the city in which they ruled changed from ruler to ruler. This could mean that the information that was gathered together from various sources and was not a complete list, or after every ruler there was a different dynasty that stepped into power. However, many believe it was just the way the nation would be set up politically. It could have been that one man was, in a sense, elected by the different tribes to rule for that man's entire life. Then, after dying, another man was elected by the tribes to rule the people. This would explain why the ruler was a member of a different family after every man finished his reign, as well as why each ruler reigned from a different city. The Edomites worshipped other gods. Just like the nations around them, they mostly worshipped the gods and goddesses of fertility. The way they made a living was through agriculture and trade. The king's highway ran through the territory of Edom. This highway was a travel route that connected the Mesopotamian region to Egypt, allowing for trade to happen all along this route. This would be the descendants of Esau. And although Esau moved away from Jacob, it isn't the last time that their family would meet. When the Israelites came up from the land of Egypt, they would encounter each other, as well as when the Edomites were conquered by King David and the Israelites and subjugated them to Israel's rule, thus fulfilling the prophecy that the older will serve the younger. More will be on the Edomites in a later episode. Although it seems that Esau got the jump on getting ahead with his descendants becoming a nation, Jacob too was on his way to becoming a nation as well. Jacob had 12 sons. With Leah, he had Reuben, who was the firstborn. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. She also bore Jacob a daughter, Dinah. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Billah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpha, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. Now Judah travels to Adullam, which is a city about twelve miles southwest of Bethlehem, to visit a friend that works for him named Hirah. While he was there he found a woman named Shua who was a Canaanite and married her. She bore three sons for Judah. The first name was Iar, which means watcher. The second son was named Onan. His name means strong or vigorous. The third was named Shelah, meaning petition. Judah would take a wife for his oldest son Iar. Her name was Tamar. However, Iar was evil and so he ended up being killed by the Lord leaving Tamar a widow. In those times when a man died and left a widow with other son, then it was the duty of the next son to take his brother's wife and have a son so that he could carry on his brother's name. This is called a levirate marriage. It was not only found in Jewish culture in the Mosaic law, but was also found in other ancient Eastern cultures as well, such as Semite, Persian, and some parts of India long before the law was given. This would be done so that the brother's name would not go extinct. Family names were very important in those days. Another reason that this custom was in place was because of the distribution of land. When a father died, he would pass on his land to his son. So raising a son in the place for the brother that had died would allow for the land to be passed on from the father to the grandson. Therefore it was the duty of Onan to take Tamar to be his wife and raise a son to continue his brother's name. However, Onan did not want to raise a child for Ear because he knew that he wouldn't be his own. This could mean that he didn't want to raise a child for Irar because the land would go to his son that he had with Tamar. So to not have children with Tamar, in Genesis 38 verse 9 it says that Onan spilled his semen on the ground. But what he did by spilling his semen on the ground was evil in the sight of the Lord so the Lord killed Onan as well. Now what this means that he spilled his semen on the ground could either mean two different things. It could either mean that Onan masturbated or he just pulled out of Tamar. Either way, Onan was not willing to impregnate Tamar. The issue isn't about what Onan did physically. The issue that the Lord saw as evil was that Onan refused to continue the line of his brother. After the death of Judah's second son, he tells his daughter-in-law to go back to her father's house and remain a widow until his youngest son is of age to marry her. However, Judah never intended to give his youngest son, Shelah, to her as a husband out of fear that he might die as well. During this time there was a law in the region that would become part of the Assyrian empire that if there were no more brothers then the widowed daughter-in-law would stay with her father-in-law to be taken care of. Now a custom like this may have existed in the time period that Judah sent Tamar back to her father's house. This would remove her from the family to help protect Sheila from the possibility of dying. At least this is what Judah thought. Time would pass by in which Judah's wife herself would die. However, after the death of his wife, Judah was comforted and eventually went back to work where he rejoined his friend Hira and the rest of the shepherds to shear the sheep. Word got back to Tamar that her father-in-law was going up to shear his flocks. Therefore she put off her widow clothes and came up with an idea to trick Judah because he had not given his youngest son to be her husband. In those days it was thought that a widow would wear some type of clothes to show that they were a widow. This type of clothing was thought to be similar to that of clothes that would be worn for mourning for the loss of a loved one. If a loved one died in order to mourn, they would put on sackcloth. Sackcloth was made out of coarse material, which would usually be made out of black goat's hair. This would be extremely uncomfortable to wear. In order to trick Judah, Tamar went and put her widow clothes aside and got dressed up and put a veil over her face. In Genesis 38 verse 14, it says that she covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself up. However, the Greek translation of the word is a little bit more aggressive in that she made herself beautiful, making herself look more attractive. She then went out on the roadside where she knew that Judah would be passing by to go to his flocks to catch his attention. Now, when Judah saw her, he thought that she was a prostitute and asked her to have intercourse with him. Now, a couple of things here. It says in Genesis 38 verse 15 that he did not recognize her and he thought she was a prostitute because she had her face covered with a veil. However, in those times there were laws in the neighboring countries that could have been found in the land of Canaan that it was illegal for a prostitute to cover her face with a veil. The veil was actually used culturally for women that were engaged. A woman that had her bride price paid for already would wear a veil over her face to show that she was waiting for a groom to come to take her to be wedded. Therefore, it's interesting when Judah saw her face covered, he thought that she was a prostitute. So it must have been something else. Some scholars have mentioned that Tamar may have dressed up as a cult prostitute or a sacred prostitute to trick Judah. Now in the Bible, there are two words for prostitute. The first is Zana, which means someone that commits adultery. The other word is Kadasha, which is a prostitute that was set apart for the worship of the gods or goddesses of fertility. Some scholars have mentioned that Tamar may have dressed up as a cult prostitute or a sacred prostitute to trick Judah. In the land of Canaan, the people would worship a fertility god named Ashtuat. In ancient culture, a sacred prostitute was one of three things. They were either fulfilling their worship to the goddess by offering to have sex at least once in their lifetime, a prostitute that was only temporary, or a full-time sacred prostitute. The full-time ones were considered priestesses for the goddess in the temple. This wasn't only found in Canaan, though. In Babylon, they had a custom in which every woman needed to offer herself at least once to the goddess of fertility. Therefore, the women of the land would come to the temple and sit in the courtyard of the temple waiting for a man to come to them. However, the women were not allowed to go home until their worship was completed by having sex with a man outside of the temple. Usually, it would be a foreigner that would come to the temple and offer a sum of money to any of the women by tossing it into their lap while she was sitting. There is no set amount of money needed to have sex with one of the women. The woman could not refuse a man, no matter the amount or the man. Once she had sex with the men, she was free to go home and live the rest of her life. However, with the men having the option to choose any woman from the temple, a lot of the time the more attractive women would be chosen. Therefore, they wouldn't have to wait long before they were able to go home. But the women that were less attractive would hardly ever get chosen and would end up having to stay at the temple for years before finally being chosen. Therefore, when Judah saw Tamar dressed as a prostitute, he called out to her to have sex with him. And although the word for this prostitute is Zanna, it refers to her later on as Kadasha or temple prostitute. She replied to him asking what he would give her. Much like the culture back then, the man had to give something in payment. Therefore, Judah offers a young goat to her, but he doesn't have it with him, so he promises to send it to her. So she asked for a signet, cord, and staff. Now the signet was something that was used to place a mark onto something, almost like a signature in today's culture. It's thought that the signet or emblem that Judah used was that of a lion which would have ties to why Jesus is sometimes called the Lion of Judah. The cord is thought to be Judah's bracelets, and the staff was not thought to be just a regular stick. The staffs were recognizable as being one's own staff because of the markings they had put on them, not just little scratches though but of different designs, carvings such as fruits, flowers, or birds. In ancient times, staff were a precursor to scepters that were basically walking sticks for kings. However, these sticks were so beautifully carved out that they would become items that were passed on from father to son. So Judah gives Tamar these items, expecting to get them back when he sent the young goat. However, he wouldn't ever get them back. That is, not for at least another three months. When Judah sends his friend Hira back to give her the goat, he asks for where the temple prostitute was. This is where Tamar is called Kadasha, to which the town people replied that no temple prostitute has been around anywhere. The only reason that Judah didn't go on searching for his items was because that he thought he would be shamed for having sex with a woman that supposedly didn't even exist. Once Tamar got these items, the two of them went on their way. Tamar, however, concedes with Judah being the father of the child. And three months later, Judah is told that his daughter-in-law has not been faithful to wait for his youngest son. So he tells them to bring her out and have her burned. But Tamar sent Judah his signet, cord, and staff and told him that by the owner of these items she was impregnated. With this, Judah acknowledges that she has been more righteous than him because he did not give his youngest son to her for a husband. Therefore, he never slept with her again. Tamar, on the other hand, gives birth to twins. And while giving birth, one of the sons put out his hand, and the midwife marked his hand with red, and then the baby drew his hand back. However, as he drew back his hand, his brother came out unexpectedly, taking the birthright as the eldest son. The firstborn son would be called Perez, which means he burst forth, or breached. From him will come the line of David, as well as the line of Jesus. The other brother would be named Zerah which means the rising, especially related to the sun, which could refer to the red on his hand. However, this was not the only thing that happened that changed the dynamics of the descendants of Jacob. Another event would happen that would change not just one brother's life, but the whole family's lives. So join us next time as everyone in the family, except Jacob of course, began to hate Joseph and would eventually sell him just to get rid of him in episode 12, Joseph and his not-so-friendly brothers. Thanks for listening to the History of the Bible podcast. Go ahead and rate and review it, and please share it with your friends and family. Also, be sure to subscribe and follow the show. For ways to give feedback or to let us know how this podcast has impacted you, check out the links in the show notes. Thanks! Until next time, remember that you are loved, special, and worthwhile.